expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's time. It's time. Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome once again to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps. Hello, Gavin. Good evening. And from Kaohsiung, we're joined by ICRT correspondent Michael Smith. Michael. Hello. Well, we've uh, been trying to fight it, but there's just no getting away from the 2016 presidential race, which right now is looking pretty lopsided. While, as we reported last week, DPP chairwoman Tsai Ing-wen's campaign is well underway, the KMT has yet to see a prominent member throw their hat in the ring. In fact, this week we kind of went the other direction with a lot of potential candidates firming their resolve not to campaign. Uh, Let's start with Eric Ju. Gavin, what did he say this week? He reiterated once again. He seems to be reiterating every week that he's not going to run for the presidency. It's all becoming a bit boring with Eric Chu. And they keep putting out uh, uh, stats saying that he's the one with the highest numbers that could possibly make a difference. They keep reiterating that Jew, Jew, Jew is the one, and he keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not. Which is why many uh, folks in the KMT are a little bit disappointed about his uh, seeming decision. You know, this is the most open uh, KMT primary that uh, at least I've seen in my entire time in Taiwan, probably in history. There is no incumbent uh, running again. There is no vice president who's announced yet, although that may uh, change. So yes, it really is completely wide open. And the people who have announced, Gavin, maybe you can tell us a little bit about them. They're not exactly household names. Well, I mean, the deputy legislative speaker, Hong Shou Chu, is sort of a quite a well-known character. And she, she, she is, she, but also very divisive. Yes, but she came out this Monday of this week and actually signed up and registered on the first day. And she took supporters to the KMT headquarter and she had a big announcement that said, change starts today. And she came out with a great quote, which I love this quote. I will have every bone of my body smashed in exchange for the country to walk on the right path. Yeah, actually, it's a translation of a Chinese idiom, which sounds better in Chinese, but anyway. Yes, but of course, her other big thing was she also vowed to sign a peace accord with China, of course. That was her... She hasn't come out with any other policies so far, but she has said that if she gets elected, becomes president, she will... One of the first things she'll do is sign a peace accord with China. And that, of course, is a uh, rather divisive uh, topic. <laughs> but it's it's divisive, but it is continuing with Ma Ying-jo's policies. So she's not completely veering away from the Ma clique within the KMT doing that, obviously. No, another one was the uh, health minister, who I believe it was yesterday or the day before, also said he will be signing up for the KMT primary. Yang Ziliang, if you remember him, he was a uh, health minister, I think, for only a short time. But he's uh, trying to walk more of a middle-of-the-line, I'm-not-necessarily-deep-blue or deep-green. He says the people of Taiwan should be able to choose their own decision on whether independence or not independence. And his main thing is he wants unity and he wants government to start working again. So he's sounding a little bit more like a sensible sort of -of middle-of-the-road politician. But not many people think he has a very strong chance of taking the election. And he, uh, interestingly enough, came out kind of swinging against the KMT. Yeah, His own la- party. He lambasted the KMT, of course, because of the money they want for its members to register t- to become a candidate. And he called, apparently, if you want to become a candidate in the KMT's presidential election nominee campaign, you have to put down 2 million NT deposit, and then you have to pay 7 million NT 
for something called an operation fee. And basically, young Jurliang said, this is absolutely ridiculous. You have a political party that's not allowing 99% of its members to run for president. And let's not forget that this is a political party that does actually have quite a bit of assets. And of course, the reply after, I mean, hours, a few hours after he came out with this, the KMT released a statement saying, well, um, we've had this policy in place for many years. And that was their only comment. Yes, well, the interesting thing about uh, Yang is that he is sort of sort of running as the anti-KMT KMT candidate, and in the climate that the KMT finds itself in in this upcoming election, where President Ma is deeply unpopular with a large segment of society, um, it's sort of like what happened in the U.S. after George W. Bush and the K, uh, the Republican nominee had to sort of distance himself and uh, criticize the administration and try to present a different, friendlier Republican face. And that's something that the KMT candidate is going to have to do here in Taiwan as well, I believe. And an interesting speculation is of the former interior minister. Li Hongyuan has been talked about repeatedly in news media, especially here in the South, as a perfect candidate to take on Tsai Ing-wen, and he has not actually ruled it out. He said he's not thinking about it. His brother said he is thinking about it. They're going back and forth, but he's also kind of one of those middle-of-the-road anti-KMT, KMT people who they might need to field if they even have a chance at all. And of course, yesterday, that being Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled in favour of Legislative Speaker Wang Jingping remaining a member of the KMT, and while he's denied any possibility that he might run or it's Wang Jingping so he simply played it down of course he remains a member of the party now legally and he could still run which is another possibility. Yeah, and uh, he would definitely have a a support base that would be relatively strong but The indications that he's given so far lead me personally to think that uh, he might be serious when he says he's not going to do it. So we'll see. Right, of course. Then there's a couple of coalition ideas that have been aired around, that being James Sung and Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jur forming a coalition to run. Because, of course, James Sung is the People First Party and Kerr is an independent. And there's also been talk of a Wang Sung ticket, that being Legislative Speaker Wang Jingping and James Sung forming their own sort of coalition there between the PFP and the KMT. James Sung just cannot stay away from an election, can he? No. <laughs> so, right, as uh, as Michael was saying, definitely very wide open. Lots of ways that this can go. Uh, we're going to be following it. Up next, though... The spat over how to proceed with the stalled Taipei Dome construction project continued this week. Taipei city government is maintaining that its safety tests have revealed safety problems with the structure. While on the other side of things, the contractor overseeing the project, Far Glory Land Development, is charging that the whole process has been hijacked by political considerations. So we're more than a week into this, and it seems like it's just getting nastier and nastier with the city uh, beginning preparations to take over the construction from Far Glory. And uh, Far Glory, meanwhile, canceling a construction project in Miaoli, apparently in retaliation. Uh, So that's some of the major developments. But uh, Gavin, if you could uh, flesh out what happened this week. Of course, there's been a rather loud war of words this week with some great comments from both sides, of course. Far Glory Group Chairman Zhao Tung Shong earlier this week, he called the cancellation of the project by the city government an unacceptable joke. And of course, then the Taipei Mayor Kerwin just shot back. Well, I believe, Keith, it was something about how the, how the Chow should get a, get a conscience or something about how he handled the project. Yeah, the exact quote is, uh, Ke said that politics is not difficult. All Chow needs to do is find his conscience. 
Right, of course, there is a lot of controversy over it because safety is an issue, of course, public safety. When the city government has said that there are not enough emergency exits in the building, Far Glory has shot back saying, no, you ran the test wrong on that. You only tested one of the eight emergency exits when you should have, in fact, tested eight of them. The Taipei city government then shot back and said, well, if you don't fix it, you can tear it down. To which Far Glory got rather antsy and said, well, that's when he came out with the great line, the unacceptable joke line. And then, of course, the Taipei city government backtracked slightly on that, saying, OK, you don't have to knock it down straight away. You can come and talk to us. And that's where it now hangs. And then the mayor came out and said that uh, there was concerns that perhaps if they did stop construction of the dome, that it would affect the uh, MRT, the Banan line, the blue line that runs underneath or very close to it. And that was a whole nother wrench that got thrown into the works. Right, because, of course, as it stands right now, it's not a terribly stable structure. And so if we leave it this way, uh, there's there's some possibility that, uh, you know, if if some major disruption happens, it it could collapse and affect that nearby line. You know, Keith, uh, this entire project has really been something that uh, I've watched develop over the last uh, 15, almost 20 years here in Taiwan. Because back in 1998, 99, when I was in Taipei, there was a baseball stadium on the corner of the uh, location where the current egg is right now, the Nanjing uh, Stadium that they have right now. And it was a very, you know, traditional, cute little baseball stadium that had about 12,000 seats and people went in there and watched baseball games right in the heart of Taipei. That was torn down in the year 2000 and the egg was uh, constructed. But the mayor, uh, later Ma Ying-jeou at the time, was promising the citizens of Taipei a professional baseball stadium that was world-class, despite there being a stadium out in Tianmu, they wanted one downtown. So when the Songshan Tobacco Factory was chosen as the site for this new proposed massive thing, it was done so uh, with two companies, Far Glory and a Japanese company that designed the Tokyo Dome originally. And when they first put out the plans, there was a lot of park area, there was a lot of trees, there was a lot of this, that, and the other. And as the years progressed, these areas slowly began to shrink. And instead of a park, all of a sudden there was a department store that was there. And then, oh, over here, instead of there being a nature wetland area, we've changed that to a hotel and this, that, and the other. So people all over the island, and especially the talk show hosts down here in southern Taiwan, see a lot of this as just straight up corruption, lying, scandal, and the rest of it. And it's going to take quite a bit to be able to convince people that there wasn't some underhanded dealings going on in this entire operation. Secondly, a lot of people, Taipei residents and Taiwan residents in general, who are asking why in the world we need more stadiums and more department stores in a city where a stone's throw away, you've got two other or three other or ten other major department stores. I believe the question of the stadium, there was some question of the renting out of the uh, the egg and the stadium adjacent to that on Dun- and Nanjing, because apparently they're both run by the city, so that you can't actually rent them out for events, I believe. And the the fact that the Far Glory was brought in to build what is, in, in all intents and purposes, a privately owned stadium, it, it can be rented out for events. Yeah, this was all of this stuff happened even before the controversies over whether or not it could be evacuated properly, or the exits were safe, or the subway system, or all of that. So it's just been one thing after another here for a good 15-plus years, and uh, here we are in 2015, and it's still continuing. 
Right. So certainly a bigger issue than uh, safety alone. And I think the big question going forward is whether or not uh, Cohen Joe's administration is going to be seen as enough of an impartial, disinterested observer uh, to really proceed with these safety checks and these other checks uh, in an impartial way that other people would consider to be legitimate. Uh, but that's a quick look at what's going on up north. Uh, Michael, I, I'm pretty sure there's stuff going on down south in local news as well, though. Is that right? Yeah, well, the biggest uh, thing that happened down here over the past week or so um, was a meeting between the heads of Pingdong, Tainan, and Kaohsiung. They got together to discuss how to increase tourism into southern Taiwan. Now, here's a few little stats for you that they cited to help explain why they feel that they're sort of getting the short end of the stick on this. Uh, flights from Taoyuan Airport, the Taiwan Taoyuan Airport, to China, there were 619 of them in March, but only 77 flights departed from the Kaohsiung Airport to China. There's 112 weekly flights from Singapore to Taoyuan, only four to Kaohsiung. From Japan to South Korea, there's almost 300 going out of Taoyuan, just over 100 coming out of Kaohsiung. And so what these uh, three major municipalities and their mayors, or or in the case of Pingdong, that would be a county magistrate, what they're saying is that the central government needs to assist in promoting flights to these regional airports. They want flights directly from the Tainan airport, for example, to cities that are deeper into China so that you don't have to transfer through either Taoyuan or Hong Kong or another Chinese city. They want flights even to the Hangchun airport down in Kending, which is a very, very small airport. I'm not sure exactly what they're thinking about that. And also to the now-closed Pingdong airport, which uh, could not sustain itself after the opening of the high-speed rail. It simply shut down due to a lack of um, of flights Flights, even domestic flights. So the things that the government heads have cited as ideas of what tourists could do in Taiwan. Number one, they're saying that southern Taiwan, with this wonderful weather in the winter, should be like a winter paradise for people who live in Northeast Asia, uh, Korea, Japan, northern China, that sort of thing. People should come here during the winter months to, months to escape the, the cold up there. And secondly, they're hoping to boost medical tourism so that you could come and get your uh, whatever nip and tuck uh, surgery done here, like uh, many do in Thailand, have a little vacation, and then head home. But they feel that the first step is to wildly or radically increase the number of flights from these smaller airports. But in Kaohsiung's case, of course, the airport is not small at all. It's a major international airport, but it just doesn't have the flight numbers that they want. Right. So these are just proposals, and we're going to have to see uh, how successful they're going to be, whether or not they're going to be able to attract the kind of numbers in tourism that they're hoping for. Right. That's the main issue, is that many of the people who commented on the uh, the three mayors having their conversation was like, well, this is all well and good, and you could increase flights. And we've done this before in Kaohsiung. They have increased flights, but then the demand just hasn't shown up, and they've had to cut back. And recently, there has been a couple of additions. There's some new flights directly to Southeast Asian countries. There's a couple new flights on uh, some budget carriers to Singapore and everything. The question is, can those seats be filled? both ways, right? So the airlines make enough money to make these routes profitable and therefore sustain them for the long haul. All right. So uh, that was nice tourism little piece there. But next up, uh, we're on to defense. Very different topic. Uh, And we don't exactly have one story, but more like a grab bag of stories for you today. There's a lot to get to. It's going to be a bit of a lightning round. Uh, Let's start with the reemergence of controversy over Taiwan's shift to an all-volunteer military. 
This week, DPP lawmakers trumpeted an Academia Sinica survey that found that more than half of respondents support returning to a conscription-based system to bolster Taiwan's military strength. But the military doesn't seem too keen to take up this issue again. Uh, Gavin, tell us about the survey and the military's response so far. Yeah, the survey was, like you said, carried out by Academia Sinica, an institute of sociology. And it apparently, according to the survey, showed that support for Taiwan resuming national service or conscription is on the rise. When asked, do you support Taiwan resuming conscription to bolster its military strength, over 50% of respondents in each age group apparently answered yes. And apparently in the age group 30 to 39, 70% of people answered yes. I feel like there's no real surprise there. They're the ones who had to do it already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how I feel. Like, go ask a 15-year-old right now whether or not he supports re- returning the idea of conscription. I bet you the numbers would be far different. Right. Uh, what, what do you think is behind this? Why, why do you think, is, is this a, a backlash to some of the military scandals that we've seen recently? Uh, why, why do people, why are people having this change of heart? Well, the person who made the comment, um, got fa- the person who made the comment was actually a, a famous DPP spokeswoman, and uh, she went on television to cite these facts and make these claims. And a couple of commentators down here have noted that this could be a little bit of posturing on the DPP side, attempting to demonstrate that they are tough on defense, tough on China, and just sort of setting them up in a bit more of a hawkish position as they go into the election. Now, this is pretty much just speculation, but that is what some people are saying. Of course, it's slightly backfired, of course, because, of course, the KMT shot back with the allegation that, oh, the DPP wants to reintroduce conscription if they're elected, which sort of it played against what the DPP could have been doing. Of course, the DPP has shot back against the KMT for making those allegations. They were simply saying that, well, it was a survey and we quoted it and we have we fully support a fully volunteered armed forces. Well, the thing has been pushed back as well, right? If you recall, the original date for the end of conscription was the end of 2013. Then it was pushed back to the end of 2016. As it stands right now, if you were born after the year 1994, you do four months of uh, some sort of basic training. It was a year, then it's down to four months. And the goal is that after the end of 2016, everyone will all males, for that matter, all males will still have to do three, maybe four months of very, very simple basic training. So in some ways, there is not going to be an end to conscription. Of course, the Ministry of Defense has said that there's no way they're going to backtrack now from going to an all-volunteer armed forces, and that will be pushed through and finalized by 2017. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, giving a a kid a a car and taking it away from them. There's some things you just can't uh, go back on, you know, it's done. There's also questions about the defence budget, of course. I mean, going all-volunteer army is a way to use the, 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 how to put this, the, the, the shrinking defence budget. If you have all these conscripts, of course, you have to pay them a minimum wage, but you have to pay them. If you go all-volunteer, you can pay people that actually want to be in the army reasonable money, and you can cut the members of the armed forces down. All right. uh, So, uh, as I said, we're going to have to move fast through that story on to another defense-related story. Up next, Taiwan's Ministry of Defense confirmed earlier this week that it will dispatch patrol aircraft on surveillance missions in its claimed territory within the disputed South China Sea. So, Gavin, this is an expansion of the area Taiwan will be patrolling. Is that right? Well, this is the military saying it's, it's recently purchased 
um, 12, it's, per, it's received 8, but it's purchased 12 P3C Orion Maritime Patrol Craft, which are used for anti-submarine warfare. And it's going to use them. It's going to use them. Well, it's using them already, but they're patrolling sort of areas around the East Coast, and especially in the Air Defence Identification Zone, which is, the, of course, the area that caused the controversy some months ago with China having a new flight path. But these P3, P3C Orion aircraft are now going to be sent to the South China Sea. And this is actually quite interesting because China is now paving sections of a runway on areas of the South China Sea in the Spratly Islands that it claims. And uh, they're also reclaiming land there as well. Yeah, huge reclamation work and runways being built. And of course, Taiwan does have a runway on Taiping Island in the Spratlys. And there is talk of expanding that. And there's also a project going on there at the moment to expand the wolf so larger ships can go in there. But I think the P3Cs being sent down there is sort of... They could send the Navy down there in great big warships. But by sending these P33 Orion aircraft down there, they're sort of saying, it's ours... But, you know, we're not actually posturing with lots of military force. And, of course, Taiwan's Taiping Island in the Spratlys is garrisoned by the Coast Guard and not the military. Well, uh, with that in mind, last up for today. Uh, This Monday, Taiwan was rocked by a series of strong earthquakes, the strongest of which was a magnitude 6.3 hit in the morning uh, and led to a fire and one death in Taipei. That was followed up in the evening by another three earthquakes, all a little bit weaker, uh, that rattled people's nerves a bit, but didn't seem to cause too much damage. Uh, but there was a little bit. Gavin, could you recap that for us? There were, I believe, an electrical transformer station in Taipei. In, in, in Xinjiang in, killed an 84-year-old man. A fire that started from that. That's right. Fire. And then there was a car park in Taipei City's Zhongshan district, one of those drive-in car parks. Apparently the elevator crashed down there. And there was also some flooding in other parts of New Taipei, which was caused by burst water pipes, which is quite ironic, considering parts of Taipei are on third-phase water rationing. <laughs> we just can't get a break. You know, I got a little uh, lesson in uh, the movement of earthquakes because I was actually on the phone with someone in Taipei in the morning down here in Kaohsiung, and they started saying, earthquake, earthquake. I'm like, what earthquake? And literally five seconds later, the ground underneath me started to shake. That earthquake covered the entire island at different intensities, but the worst was definitely Taipei. And there's actually reasons for that. The soil under Banqiao and Xinjiang and various parts of especially New Taipei City is very loose and very shallow. So when earthquakes do hit, they are felt with greater intensity in those areas than they would be in other parts of Taiwan. Uh, Right. So that's a little bit of a recap of, you know, the actual physical happenings that day. Uh, But there has been a a little bit of a response from the more higher minded, more far looking end of uh, end of stuff. Academia Sinica released a report which issued a number of recommendations uh, on how to reduce damage from earthquakes. Right, Gavin? Yes, Keith. The report suggested an upgrading of older houses and buildings in Taipei to make them better resist earthquakes. It also called for the strengthening of the alarm system for earthquakes and the reinforcing of the ability to evacuate residents and accommodate evacuees when an earthquake strikes. Yeah, they also gave a few stats that were pretty interesting. Um, The report said that 35% and that equals that that means 35% of the 3.78 million houses in Taiwan are more than 30 years old 
And of these houses that are more than 30 years old, obviously they were built with uh, earthquake uh, structures that are not up to current um, safety standards. So the casualty rate that they're uh, projecting, if another very, very serious earthquake were to strike and if it was exactly the right depth, they're saying it could be quite serious and quite high. And Taiwan has uh, 22,000 earthquakes every year on average, but only about 600 of those each year have enough vibrations that uh, people can feel because we are, as uh, most people know, we're right on the tectonic plate between the Eurasian and Philippine plates. And that's what happened uh, earlier this week. The two uh, collided. There was some subduction and shake, shake. Then, of course, there was a classic line from the celebrity who will remain unnamed because he's been ridiculed enough, who came out and blamed the soil being damp because of all the rain for the earthquake. I think he's mistaking mudslides and earthquakes. That's easy, easy enough to do. Well, all right, well, we better get off this topic of earthquakes or else uh, us non-scientific folk are going to say something just as stupid as that unnamed celebrity. <laughs> uh, and we're going to have to leave the whole show there. In fact, you can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on the blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the iTunes ICRT studio. I'm Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Yes, good night. And Michael Smith. Bye-bye from southern Taiwan. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, www.icrt.com.tw. Now, keep it here for more music and news, only on ICRT-FM 100.